Hey, welcome to church this afternoon, friends. Great to be in the room with you, each of you. This is literally one of the highlights of my week. And um, Lauren said it well before when she said that what makes church is particularly not what happens from the front, actually. That structures our time together, sure. But what makes church is the very presence of people and how those people come together and share what God's doing in and through them for the sake of one another. And I want to acknowledge this afternoon, we've got like a few people missing because of COVID and they're isolating and that's fine. Um, But because of that, we've actually got sort of a slimmed down band. And I just want to honor the fact that Aaron, Josh and Richard led us before with a slightly slimmed down band where they're not used to. So can we just give them a little round of applause? My name's Alex, I'm the pastor here, and if you've not met me, come say good day. We'd love to chat, get to know you and your story. But as a church, we've been going through a series on the topic of faith, by faith. And in doing that, we've been looking at the story of Abraham, and, and so far we've come to this position. We've defined faith, which someone came up to me after the first, wo- first week and said, geez, that's a risky, that's a risky task, defining faith, because it's actually quite complex and multifaceted in the story of the Bible. But here's our definition. Faith is embodied trust, beautifully simple. Put your whole life into it, embodied trust. It involves your head, your heart, your hands, every part of your being. Now, here's the contrasts we've made. Here's how we've spoken in the negative around some caricatures of the way that people talk about faith in our culture. Some people want to say that faith is wish fulfillment. It's sort of like pie in the sky when you die. You've got no evidence for it. You just believe in something in the face of no evidence. Some people want to say that faith is like an emotional switch. And charismatics tend to lean towards this uh, definition. Not that it's a wrong definition, but by itself, itself can be unhelpful. An emotional switch, it's like this switch you turn on when you get to church and the preacher says, how's everyone feeling this afternoon? And everyone should say, yeah, great, I've got faith. It's like a switch, you turn it on. Other people wanted to find faith as just purely intellectual assent. It's this idea that there's a bunch of ideas about God and the world, and we just got to put our minds to it. And that's what faith is. But for us, we want to say that faith includes these things, but it exceeds these things. Sure, faith is about hope in something we can't see, but that doesn't mean we don't have evidence for that which we have hope in. The Christian story and the Christian faith is not one we step into with the lack of evidence. It's one we step through the evidence in and unashamedly for. Faith does include living life with expectation that God can do incredible things, particularly when we show up at church on Sunday. So it is, in that sense, it can feel like an emotional switch, but it's more than that. If it was reduced to that, then when we turn up in the, in the building on a Sunday and we don't feel all together, what would we conclude? Well, we might conclude that we don't have faith, but that's not the case. There's a myriad of people in the Scriptures that have very weak emotional lives, but they still are called by God. We also want to say that faith is, a, is, it is about an agreement with a certain body of ideas. There is doctrine in the Christian life. God is God. We are human. Jesus was who he said he was, and he raised from dead on the third day. These are ideas, and we, we do give intellectual assent to these ideas. But we want to say that being Christian and having faith is more about being informed. It's about being transformed. And that mere information alone intellectual assent to ideas alone. It's not a sufficient definition of faith. Faith, it's embodied trust. It involves your head, your heart, and your hands. It's not something Christians simply have. It's something that actually everyone has. You, regardless of your worldview this afternoon, have faith. Some of you might have faith in the human project, 
which towards the end of the 20th century got a little shaky, and now towards another world war, possibly, you know, that's what some commentators are saying, although less so now, your faith in the human project sort of subsides a bit. Some of you have faith in the idea that there is no God, and you stake your life on that claim. Some of you here this afternoon have faith in the God who showed us himself in Jesus Christ, and you call yourself a Christian. All of us have faith. It's not about whether we have a faith, it's about what we have faith in, and how our definitions of faith lead not just to information, not just to wish fulfillment, not just to intellectual ideas that we ascend to, but to a transformed life. And so the question I've got this afternoon is, how's your faith? Today, we're zooming in on Genesis 16, and I want to unpack faith a little bit more. And just before I do, I want to be really honest. What a passage, hey? If you've never been to church before and you stumbled in this afternoon and you're like, man, why is this in, in the book that Christians call inspired by God? It's grotesque. It's the story of a woman. She's Egyptian. Her name's Hagar. And she's got like no agency. She seems to be the object of use from a family that Christians esteem and Jews esteem and Muslims esteem, Abraham's family. What's the go? That's a really good question. Before we get into it, I want to just say, give us a little helpful framework for parts of the Bible like this. Because we, with modern ears and modern eyes, come with all of our moral categories and we start to judge the story, which in a sense is right to do. But if we judge it to the, to the degree that we're not able to see through it and hear about the God who claims to reveal himself in it, we've missed something. There's a difference in the Christian story and in the Bible between describing something and prescribing something. To describe something means to say what something is. To prescribe something means to say what something should be or what something ought to be. And here's the thing about the Bible. It's an ancient text. And because it's ancient, there's going to be like a whole host of things that when we read it, we're going to find ourselves thinking, well, that's actually morally wrong. That's not right. And that's a good intuition. Um, but here's what could be happening when you say those things in the face of the biblical text. What could be happening is that you could be reading about a world that the Bible describes and not necessarily reading about what it is that God wants to prescribe. There's a difference. And the task of reading the Bible faithfully the task of study and devotion and putting ourselves into the story that God writes in this text. It's to see what God might be saying into a historical situation so we might hear from that and apply it to our lives. And in this passage, here's what we get. We get a God accommodating himself to the practices of the day, building relationship with a certain kind of people so that in and through them he can take them on a journey. Here's, the, here's what God's doing in the, in the scriptures. God doesn't want to reject the world as it is because it's so morally wayward. He doesn't. God doesn't want to uncritically receive the world because it's so, you know, whatever. He wants to redeem the world. And for God to do that, he's got to show up in time, in a certain place, and major on relationships so he can tilt the world to, the world to that which he wants it to go. Think of the story of slavery. The Bible tells story, particularly the one we're looking at today, stories all the time about slavery. But it was Christians in the 18th and 19th century who led the charge toward the abolition of slavery. And here's what they'd say when they led that charge. 
Because the, they would say that the worldview that they got from the scriptures gave them the resources with which to advocate for the abolition of slavery. So here's the point I want to make before we jump into the story of Hagar, just so we can read it, right, as modern people. Here's the point I want to make. The point is, if you come to the Bible on its own terms, it's actually trying to paint a picture of a God who gives us the resources to critique some of the stories we find in the Bible. Think about that. If you take the Bible on its own terms, it's actually trying to paint a picture of a God who gives us the resources with which to critique some of the stories in the Bible. By which I mean, the story we read today is not one that God sanctions and prescribes for us. It's something that the writers are describing, but we need to hear God's voice through it. And so to do that, I wanna pray, and we're gonna jump into the story of Abram and Hagar. Let me pray. Father God, thank you so much that, Lord, you did turn up. You turned up in history, and you showed us yourself. And I pray this afternoon, God, we would hear from you. We would hear your voice, that through this ancient text inspired by you from eternity right now into our hearts, that we'd hear the voice of God, and we find our lives transformed because of what you say to us here this afternoon. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray, and everyone said... Amen. So awesome. Um, the thing that I think we learn from this story this afternoon is just a little window into the journey of faith. A little window into the journey of faith. I was given the title, The Weakness of Faith. Um, I actually helped construct sort of our sermon series as a church-wide family. And as I was praying and thinking, and the more I reflected on this story, the more I realized that if I don't preach on the idea that faith is a journey, then I wouldn't be faithful to what God sort of revealed to me this week. And so, a bit of an adventure. It might work. Who knows? But um, I think that's one of the key things this text would invite us to consider this afternoon. Um, as a church, we've been looking at faith through the story of Abraham, or Abram, as we'll talk about him this afternoon. We meet Abram in Genesis 12. He's 75 years old. God makes him a promise. God says, Genesis 12, verse 2 and 3, Go from your father's household to a land that I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And then from this moment, across the span of Abram's life, he follows after God. He leaves his family home. He sets off for a new land. Then along the way, he starts to wonder when God will come good on his promise, and he starts to ask questions like, hey, God, where's the son that you promised me? Because I can't have a nation unless I have a family, and I can't have a family unless I have a kid. My wife, Sarah, she's barren. She's not able to have kids. Where's the kid? You promised me in Genesis 12, 10 years ago, that I'd have a son. 10 years had elapsed. Abraham's getting anxious. We know this because last week, Pastor Mike unpacked Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, Abram goes to God and he's like, God, where's the kid? What's happening? And we know that he's anxious because Abraham starts wondering where will his wealth and estate go to if he doesn't have the kid that God promised? And Abram's answer is this, a guy named Eliezer of Damascus, one of the slaves in Abram's big wealthy family. God's not come good on the promise yet. And um, God responds, Genesis 15:4. And he gives like a bit more detail to the promise that he made. Now, just pause here for a second before I unpack that detail. The thing that always astounds me about this story is just how little details God gives. I sort of hinted at this in the first week, but God makes this big promise, but there's no strat plan, you know? 
There's no detailed architecture. There's no blueprint. It's just, here's a bit of detail. And here's why Abraham's commended. Because he takes what he knows about God and walks forward. He takes what he knows about God and walks forward. Beautiful, beautiful scene. But here's what God says to the question Abram raises. Genesis 15 verse 4 says, It'll be a son who is your own flesh and blood who will be your heir. Now that might not sound very significant, but here's what God's saying. God's saying that your estate is not going to go to the slave in your household. It's actually going to go to your own flesh and blood, which means God's promising a biological son for Abram. So Abraham's like, good, thank you very much. These are the details I needed to outwork the promise that you gave me. Let's walk forward. So he takes this information. And as the story in Genesis 16 that we read, he has a child with a woman named Hagar. What happens, it's a bit hard to read, It's the story of a female slave being used by a family to extend their family line. Now, I flagged up front that we want to hear God's voice through this. So let me just unpack a few things that might help us do that. Um, to modern readers, this sounds like abusive and regressive and sort of like objectification. There's a modern psych writer, her name's Sherry Turkle, and she says like modern people have made objects out of people and people out of objects, critiquing the way we use our phones. This is an age-old problem, um, actually, particularly in the story of slavery. To modern readers, it sounds abusive and regressive, and that's because it is. But at the same time, in that time, it wasn't. And you need to see this. This is really important. At that time, it wasn't regressive. At that time, it was actually seen as perfectly normal. See, in that culture, they had this idea that if a wife was unable to have kids, then she could provide one of her slaves to be a substitute mother for the father. There's actually a few texts that survive from other parallel cultures of the day that literally list policies for what would happen if you're a barren wife unable to have kids. Now, this was important because what was valued in that culture for economic success, for family flourishing, was the passing on of wealth down the generations through the family line of the male. It's what they call a patriarchal culture. And this is how they did their life. It was incredibly important to the structure of the day. It was a common practice in the ancient Near East. And so for Abram and Sarai, here's what they think they're doing. They think they're just doing the logical thing. That's all they think they're doing. They don't think they're trying to fabricate God's promise. They just think they're doing what they were taught to do by the culture that they found themselves in. And that's really important. Why do I tell you all this? I tell you all this because so often, particularly from Christian preachers, Abram gets a pretty bad rap in this moment. We come to the story of Abraham and we ask this question, what can I imitate from this guy? And we read Genesis 12 and we see how Abram took a step of faith with very little detail to go off and we think, I want to be like that. And then we read Genesis 15 and Abraham's asking, asking questions of God and we're like, maybe I'll just learn from that, you know? And then we come to Genesis 16 and this happens, and modern readers are like, no, I won't do that, right? But what's the problem here? The problem is not the story. The problem is what you expect to get from the story. The story of Abraham does not exist to give you an example of someone of faith only. If that was it, you'd find yourself critiquing him one week and then celebrating him the next. And it's very topsy-turvy. The story of Abraham exists to give us a window into the God that Abraham met by faith. 
There is a huge difference because that same God is available to us today. That same God wants to interrupt our lives. That same God wants to meet you. See, because we're actually going to discover that what Abram did was not part of God's plan. The baby that Hagar gives birth to is not the child of promise that God intended. Hagar gives birth to a baby named Ishmael. Now, this happens in chapter 17. I'm zooming ahead a bit, but forgive me. But we find out in Genesis 17 that God intends for Sarai to give birth to Isaac. Isaac will be the child of promise. So in a nutshell, here's the basic outline of Abram's life. And just, you know, see if this resonates with any of you. This is the basic outline of Abram's life. At 75 years old, he thinks, I'm going to be blessed with a family from God, yay. But then he thinks, oh, my wife is barren, boo. So he has a conversation with God and realizes this, that, oh, I can have the child through a surrogate, yay. And then he realizes that's not the child of promise, boo. And then he says, oh, now my wife has given birth to the child of promise, yay. And on and on it goes, and it's this roller coaster, up and down. Um, and I was reflecting on Abram's story this week, and the more I reflected on this roller coaster that Abram's on, and the steadfast continuity of God in the midst of that, the more I felt called just to speak on what it means to discern the will of God in our lives. Because here's Abram. Between the time God promised him a child and the time that Ishmael turned up, 10 years. Between the time Ishmael was born and the time that God told him Ishmael's not the promised kid, 13 years. So you've got a guy who stands before God, 25 years in the making, God says, you've, you've missed a few things. Is it a waste of time? Did Abraham discern wrongly? Here's my question. Is Abraham following the will of God in this story? Because that's the question I think it gets asked. Did Abraham know God's plan? And here's the answer to that question. Yes and no. Yes and no. Every solution that Abram comes up with creates another obstacle for God to overcome. Sure, he takes steps forward in the right direction, but every two steps forward, he takes one step back. But here's, what interest, here's, here's the really interesting part about the story of Abraham. God never condemns Abram for making the wrong decision. If you read through the entire story, the only gr like gripe that God's got with Abram is he says, Ishmael's not the child of blessing. But he doesn't condemn Abram for walking forward by faith and making mistakes along the way. Doesn't do that. No, instead, God just continues to reveal himself to Abram, and he continues to outwork his promise. That's what God does. I don't know if you know this, but when God is part of your journey, even wrong decisions aren't the end of the story. It's a really controversial thing to say. But when God's part of your journey, even wrong decisions aren't the end of the story. Because God's a redeemer. See, Abraham's worst chapter wasn't his last chapter. And here's the thing, it's not because Abraham learned how to write a better story with his life, it's because he allowed God to be the one with the ultimate pen. And God doesn't condemn Abraham for his foolhardiness or his like, inability to be the perfect human. God just relationally and consistently comes alongside and reveals himself. That's the God that Abram follows, and that's the God he has faith in. And here's what God put on my heart as I was preparing. Some of you need to hear that today. As a pastor, I have the privilege of people coming to me randomly and saying, what's the will of God? How do I discern the will of God in my life? And I just tell them, I'm kidding, I don't. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I reckon it's this. But if I had like a bad breakfast that morning, it could be a bit skew if. 
But they ask, like, what's the will of God for my life? What a beautiful question. What a tender-hearted question. But I think as years have developed, we've learned to ask this question with more anxiety. People ask me, Alex, should I marry this person? Actually, that's a terrible, this person or that person. They don't ask that. I've never been asked that question. But they say, hey, should I get married right now or stay single? Should I take this job or that job? Should I be in this city or that city? What's God's will for my life? Now, sometimes I think God has an answer. A few years ago, my wife and I discerned a call to move to the UK. And it cost us a lot of money. And God miraculously turned up to provide that money so we'd find ourselves overseas in a training program that literally transformed my life. It was God's will. I believe he can speak and he does direct us. But there's an anxiety with which people ask that question and it fuels it. A lot of people when they're asking that question, particularly as I've experienced it as a pastor, is this. Not what should I do next or what's right for me to do, but how do I ensure I don't do the wrong thing? And it's this fear that if, they, if the decision they make next is wrong, it sets them up for this causal chain of events that's ultimately going to destroy their lives. Should I stay in this job or that job? Should I go and do this program of study or that program of study? And what the, the anxiety with which we ask that question, it just sets up this idea that, man, this is just going to determine my life. I was in Sydney um, just over the weekend, and um, we were walking through Surrey Hills where we've got family that live. And um, we walked into this designer's shop, which is like every shop in Surrey Hills, and everything was beautiful and lovely. And on the bookshelves, they had um, some works by a philosopher, a guy named Alain, Alain de Botton. Butchered that. And he's developed a thing, what he calls the school of life. And the school of life exists to help people sort of win at life, basically. A bunch of sort of like... Um, emotional help tools and leadership tools and a myriad of things, most of which are really helpful, actually. Um, but I found this card game, and it was called What Should I Do With My Life? And I, when I read the back, I was just like, man, I can't help but think this is how we ask this question as Christians. Let me read it to you. Um, it's a card game. It says, what should I do with my life? Um, it, it starts by saying this. There are some 600,000 jobs in the world. It can be really hard to figure out what we should do. This game helps us discover what we can do for the rest of our lives. <laughs> How daunting does that sound? I feel exhilarated at the idea of playing that with someone. I nearly bought it, but then I thought, no, there's enough anxiety in the world. Um, <laughs> But this is how people talk about what it means to come to know God's will for our lives, right? I don't know if you've felt this, particularly if you're between the ages of 35 and 25, you feel this because you're making a bunch of life decisions. And the fear is that if you make the wrong decision, it could set you up for a world of hurt or a world of beauty. Now, here's what this story would tell us. It's true that you can make wrong decisions in life. You can sin. You can ignore God's voice. You can live to what the New Testament writers call living according to the flesh. But if you're weighing two options up in life, both of which are good, none of which are sinful, and you've not heard the voice of the Lord or good counsel from friends which seem to affirm something, then I would just say there's a bunch of permission. And if you find that it harms your life or helps your life, that's a secondary issue in which God can be present. That's the story of Abram. That Abram made a bunch of roller coaster moves, and what seemed logical and helpful to him actually wasn't the plan of God. And the way he participated when God first called him, and the, the Bible upholds as good, that was good and godly. But all through it, through the good and the bad, the ugly, the sad, 
God remained present. And then when Abram finds himself, realizing that he'd not done what God had already intended, his story wasn't finished, his life wasn't over. God was still present, and he was there. One scholar I was reading this week, he put it like this. John Walton said, with God, there is no dead ends, just training grounds. We say it all the time as a church, but God cares more about who you're becoming than what you do, and here's his end game. I said this to someone recently. Regardless of the next decision you make, whether it's a big one or a small one, and you're so fearful of it, God wants to form in you the kind of person that whether it's helpful or harmful to your life, you can flourish through it. Just think about how liberating that is. If you've got a relationship with God that anchors your soul and your heart amidst good things and bad things in life, particularly when it comes to making decisions, and you invest your very self into becoming the kind of person who can deal with it if it's good or bad, that'll change the world. It'll change your world. It'll change the way you make decisions. And so I would just say to you, follow God in such a way that you're able to flourish through whatever decision you make. It doesn't mean you can't make wrong decisions. Avoid sin. Avoid living according to the flesh. If God's telling you to do something, do it. That's what Abram was commended for. But in the absence of the voice of God, don't be anxious about life decisions. Walk with wisdom. Walk in prayer. And if you make the wrong decision, it's going to be okay because God will be right there. I hope that ministered to someone this afternoon. So how do you know you can do that with this God? And this is where we come to the story of Hagar. Let me just take a moment to unpack the story of Hagar and give us a window into who she is. Um, she's actually been sort of the object of a bit of art over the years. I've got some on the screens behind me. Um, Jan Steen in 1657 did this beautiful piece. It's called The Expulsion of Hagar. Um, after that, we've got Gustave Dor uh, wrote, um, did this beautiful piece in the 1800s, Hagar and Ishmael in the Desert. And lastly, there's this somewhat different but more modern 1996 um, Wayne Fort did in California this piece called Hagar, just simply Hagar. And the thing I love about these images is they paint the right picture. They paint a picture of someone who's isolated, someone who's lonely, someone who's in despair, someone who feels rejected and is just at absolute surrender in the situation that she finds herself in. Hagar, she was an Egyptian slave, and it's most likely the case that Abram and Sarai adopted her or conscripted her or enlisted her when they were in Egypt a few years prior. Genesis 16 tells us that Sarai gave her over to be the surrogate mother of Abram's child. So she falls pregnant. Now, in the ancient world, falling pregnant and having kids was a sign of blessing from the gods. And so Hagar's status immediately goes up the moment she has a kid, and things get tense between her and her slave owner. Hagar and Sarai. And in Genesis 16:4, it says it like this. When she knew that she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. So it gets tense between these two women, and the family makes a decision uh, to banish Hagar from the household. So she finds herself alone, afraid, pregnant, and a woman. Where does she go? Where would you go if you were alone and afraid? Hagar goes home. Verse 7 says it like this, The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And later the book of Genesis talks about Shur as being on the way to Egypt. So here, here's the picture. You've got a picture like this. 
Shur is located in the northern region of the Sinai Peninsula. At this point, Abraham's camp is probably still in a place called Hebron, which means, according to the geography, she's traveled about 75 miles, and she's been on the road for about a week. She's pregnant, she's alone, she's tired. She just wants to go home. That's the picture of Hagar. And here's what happens next. Three things. God appears to her, God makes a promise to her, and God allows her to name him. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. Verse 9, then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants, so much so that they will be too numerous to count. And she gave this name to the Lord who spoke for her. You are the God who sees me, for she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. When I was, um, before Kath and I met, we someone whispered into our ear and sort of tried to set us up, just a little divulgence. And we first met at an engagement party, actually, um, not our own. And um, we're at this engagement party. <laughs> and because we'd both been told about one another, just like whispers, you know, we were super aware of one another at this party. And in reflection, both of us started asking the question to one another, like once we'd sort of got married and reflected together. We both wanted to say, like, we, we both just had the sense that, like, oh, we hoped we were seen by one another. Like, we were so aware of one another, but were we aware that the other was aware of us? You know what I mean? To be seen and known, and that was what we wanted, to be seen. But we weren't sure if we would be. Now, little side note, we'll come back there. Ancient readers, right, they would have cited three reasons to disqualify Hagar at this point disqualifying her from receiving a special visit from God. Reason number one, she was a servant. Reason number two, she was a woman. And reason number three, she was Egyptian. But that's the least of their problems. See, God not only visits Hagar, but God lets Hagar name him. Just to go one further than the reasons that Jewish readers would have disqualified Hagar, Jewish writers would have been baffled by the story of Hagar and its inclusion in the text because one of the things that the Jews esteem is the name of God. The name of God. In the scriptures, we translate when God is, is used in, um, I think it's the third person or first person, Hebrew scholars in the room, shout out, don't actually know. But when the name is used, it's translated the Lord. And what the writer is trying to capture there is this sense that we can't use God's name because it's too holy, it's too special, it's too other. And God lets Hagar name him. I don't know if you know this, but every time God gets a name in the Bible, God gives it to himself. And every other time, it's when people use the names that God's given himself to worship or adore or tell others about him. There's one occasion in the Old Testament where someone names God, and this is it. A female, a slave, an Egyptian. Not only visits her, not only makes a promise, but she becomes the one that God allows to give him a name. And here's the name, the one who sees me. The fascinating thing about talking about life and love as existing between the conduit of being seen is that when you first meet someone, you wonder, will they see me? After you've met them, you ask the, you ask the question, do I have to let them see me for who I am? You know what I mean? What did Hagar experience that she was able to describe God as one who sees her? I think maybe twofold. 
One, God knows our pain. He knows our suffering. He knows the people by whom we've been victimized. He knows the oppression that we sat under. He knows everything that ails us. He sees us. He's not far off. He's not distant. He's here. And you need to hear that this afternoon. If you're walking through stuff, let me just say, God sees you. God knows you. God's here. He's not absent. He wants to be right here in this moment with you. Not so you'd say the right things and sort of be happy clappy about it, just so you'd know his comfort, his presence, his love. But there's another way that God sees us, and it's the kind of way that I've experienced in marriage, that there's parts of us that we don't want to be seen. There's parts of our lives, whether it's body parts or temperaments or attitudes or whatever, that we don't want to be seen. Why? Because we're scared of what someone will do in the face of seeing us for who we truly are. And here's the beautiful simplicity of what Hagar says. She says that God sees. God sees. He's the one who sees us for who we are, not for who we pretend to be, not for who we're ashamed of not being, but for who we are. You know, the only other time that God equates himself with with something in the Bible is when the writer John talks about God as love. And you've got this beautiful tension that uproars in the story of the Bible, which is this that God sees us to the depths and he loves us to the heights, that God God knows us for who we are, but he meets us where we are to transform us into the people that he wants us to be. Tim Keller would say it beautifully. He would say something like this, that um, to be known without being loved is the scariest thing in the world. And to be loved without being known is superficial. And here's the simplicity of this tension the God who sees, and the God that is love. That God knows all of you, every little part of you, all the parts you don't let others see, every piece of your life. He knows you to the depths. But in that place, doesn't reject you, doesn't slam you, shut you out, or say that's not good enough for me. He says, I love you. There's a hymn from the writer Wesley, from whom we, part of our tradition comes, and he described his conversion as coming to grips with this fact. He put it like this, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke the dungeons flamed with light, my chains flew off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee beautiful tension. Wesley let God see him. Wesley let God love him. And the question I've got this afternoon is, will you do the same? Church, can I invite you to your feet? The question we'd ask is, how could all this be possible? And the stanza just before Wesley wrote this one went like this, talking about Jesus. A little backup here. The story of Abram gets its bearings from the story of the Bible, and the story of the Bible is simply this, that through one man, Adam, came sin and death and decay. Through Abram came another man, Jesus, and through Jesus came life, life to the full, and life eternal. Jesus didn't change the way God feels about us. Jesus climaxed what God was doing from the beginning, redeeming the world. And so Wesley had this to say about Jesus. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. His mercy all, immense and free, 
For oh my God, it found out me. Tis mercy all, immense and free. For oh my God, it found out me. God sees and he loves. And this afternoon he sees you and he loves you. Everything you are and everything you're not. Something I've found in my life as a Christian, and particularly when I came to faith, is this. The degree to which you let God see you is the degree to, to which you let him love you. I'll just say that one more time. The degree to which you let God see you. Open your heart to him. Be honest with him. Be transparent before him. That's the degree to which you'll let him love you. And he's got a lot of love to give. And so my question for us this afternoon is, will we let him see us? Will we let him love us? I just invite you to close your eyes. I just want to lead us in a prayer of repentance. As the band comes up, I just invite you to open your hands if you'd be so willing. And just like the psalmist, David would pray, God, search me and know me. See if there's anything in me and help me walk after you. I just want to lead you in that prayer. So in the quiet of your own heart, why don't you just pray this prayer after me, whether for the first time or for the 50th. God, thank you that you see me and thank you that you love me, that you know who I am and you know what I'm not. Sorry, Lord, for walking not in step with you and for not letting you in and for defining life on my own terms. Please, Lord, come into my life afresh. Help me experience your love and your reconciliation so I might follow the God of faith, the God who sees me, and the God who is love. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Friends, in this moment, we're just going to continue in worship. If God spoke to you, feel free to come and share. We'd love to pray with you. I'll be down here by my right, your left. But let your heart just overflow this afternoon. Be present with us. I'll be there with a team of people as well. So if you'd like to receive prayer, not just from me, but from someone else, that'll be very possible. But let's sing. Let's lift up our hearts to the